Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, our guest is Dr. B.J. Fogg from Stanford University, and he's going to talk about his behavioral change model and about tiny, tiny steps to habit change. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay of support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduce drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, BJ Fogg, is with us right now. I'm going to bring him on. Hello, BJ. Hello. How are you doing? Hi. Hey, I'm doing good. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, you have a website about about tiny steps to behavior change, and let's talk about that first. Uh, how does that work? Yeah. So a few years ago, I, I started... Uh, working on new ways to change my habits or to bring new habits into my life. And now, a number of years later, there's a program that I call Tiny Habits. And it's a really simple way to bring new behaviors into your life. And I think it's a breakthrough in some ways. Uh, And, um, yeah, we, we can talk more about it. But let me just say, you know, you've got this program called Tiny Habits, which is something I developed building on Oh, I guess years of research and observation around how behavior works, and then uh, and it's a, it's actually a product that I'm offering outside of Stanford and a method. And then I have a Stanford version of me. Right now I'm at Stanford, and I run a mm-hmm. lab here called the Behavior Design Lab. And the work here at Stanford with my lab and my teaching is all about behavior and behavior change. Whereas Tiny Habits is something that I've uh, been doing outside of Stanford along with my other outside work. So. It's kind of, um, I have a foot in both worlds, one in the academic world and one in the very practical world, including behavior change. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about how it works. How do, how do people change their habits? <laughs> well, the tiny habits approach, uh, what you first do is you pick a very small behavior that you want to bring into your life. So even if you think flossing is small, uh, and the tiny habits method, it's too big. You scale it back to flossing one tooth, not flossing all your teeth. If you want to do more push-ups, you don't pick 20 push-ups as your goal. You pick one or two. And so, you know, step one is to take kind of your bigger aspiration and break, bring it down to something very, very small, which is why I call it tiny. Then you figure out where that new tiny behavior fits naturally in your life. Now, where is the natural place for you to floss? Where is the natural place in your life to do push-ups? In the case of flossing, and what you're looking for is where to sequence the behavior after. So the, the recipe, what we call a recipe, sounds something like this. After I brush, I will floss one tooth. So your existing routine of brushing becomes the prompt, or what I call the trigger, for doing the new behavior of flossing one tooth. And that is the core of the method scaling things back really small, finding out where it fits in your life, what it comes after naturally, and it comes after a a habit you already have, 
and, and that, that's the essence of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this this is available on a fee for service basis? Is that correct? Yeah, mostly free. So I now coach it's over free? twenty. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is why I'm like sorta. Um, there's a free version, and the free version. Mm-hmm. And if you if you want to do this, go to tinyhabits.com. And there's a free version. It's a five-day program that I run through email. Part of it's automated. Part of it's me actually answering your email. It's a mix of those things. And yeah, over the last two and a half years, 25,000 people have done it. And so, and I've coached each person uh, personally. And so I know a lot about how habits form. There is a paid-for version from specialty coaches. So I've mm-hmm. trained some in the method, and they bring specialties like weight loss or stress reduction or productivity or happiness. And those coaches that I've trained, like let's say you sign up for Tiny Habits for Happiness or Tiny Habits for Stress Reduction. Uh, Those coaches Mm -hmm. can charge, um, you know, they don't do it for free. And their programs aren't automated like my five-day program is. But they're using the same method, the same breakthrough approach. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been doing something kind of similar with uh, people's drinking habits. And, you know, one of the things that we suggest people do, and, you know, we, we give people several suggestions to choose from, but one of the suggestions we make is to start just by counting the number of drinks you're having per day and writing those down instead of, you know, actually, you know, telling people, you know, to cut down X number or, you know, people don't even know how many drinks they're drinking. So we just say, you know, the measure and count to start and then, you know, after you're comfortable and that becomes a habit, then you can think about cutting back a certain number per day, whatever you're comfortable with. And, you know, people have, people have had a lot of success with that. Yeah, the similarity I see is, by having people do something small, I mean, the mistake people make and the mistake in many, many programs out there in the health world is they, they try to sell you on the idea that you're going to change everything overnight and that you're suddenly mm-hmm. magically going to start doing something dramatically different overnight from now on. And the sad mm-hmm. thing about that is those, those programs rarely work uh, in that way. And then people try it and they fail and they feel like they lack willpower. They feel like it's a personal failing. And what you described and the way Tiny Habits works is you have people do something really small and simple. And when they succeed on that, and it's easy to succeed on small things, then they feel more confident and more ambitious to do harder things. And they also have more Mm -hmm. skills to do harder things. And so it's really about Mm -hmm. understanding that the, the, the big leap approach. So you have a baby step approach, you have a big leap approach. The big leap approach, rare, there are times when it does work, but you have yes. to orchestrate the environment and other things. Uh, and it just often doesn't. And the baby step approach, that includes tiny habits, and I, I think what you described, um, can help people not only be successful, but feel successful. And what I found in the tiny habits method is the feeling that you are succeeding is vital to long-term success. And mm-hmm. in some ways, it doesn't even really matter if you are succeeding or not, if you feel like you're succeeding. Let me give an example. 
Um, let's say that you're trying to lose weight, and every day you get on the scale, and it tells you exactly what your weight is, and some days you're up, and some days you're down, and you just feel like, I'm not making progress. But let's imagine this is a new kind of scale that always tells you the truth, but it doesn't always tell you your weight. And so some days it might show you your weight if you've lost some, but days that you've gained, it might say something else to you, like, you know, overall this month you've lost weight, or you are on track for your goal, things like that. In other words, it's not. I think people creating, especially now with the quantified self-movement and all these devices and all the data they can generate about our behavior and our status, the, you, the engineers and the designers make a mistake to think that data is the highest truth. And mm-hmm. maybe in some worlds, like you know, flying somebody to the moon, you have to absolutely say, here's all the data. But I think when it comes to behavior change, the most important thing to design for is the emotional response. And the emotional response of feeling successful leads to a mm-hmm. whole bunch of other positive outcomes. And so that really, in my teaching and training, both at Stanford and outside, is to help people understand the importance of helping people feel successful in their quest to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had very similar experience. And, you know, other things that people might start with, they might want to take some time off from drinking where they don't drink at all. And we say, well, you can start with taking one day off. Um, and, you know, we have people look back over the time, you know, since they've been involved with our group, from what they were doing before, and they can say, oh, well, this month I had 10 days off. Last year before that, I had one day off for the whole year. And they, you know, I always encourage people not to look at themselves and say, oh, I drank a lot yesterday, that means I'm a failure. But look over the long term. Have you made changes? And everybody can always come back and say, yeah, if I look at the longer term, yeah, I made a lot of positive changes. So I, I really... I think that's huge, what you just said, about you know, keeping people motivated, feeling good, and feeling that they've accomplished changes, because you know, they are always accomplishing changes. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, you know, we, we have sayings in our culture, success leads to success, and, you know, mm-hmm. build on baby steps and things like that. And, but again, and this is, you know, in, in my speaking and my teaching, I'm the person, I'm about pointing to here's what works. You know, I shine a spotlight on what works. However, I have to admit, in the last few years, I've become a little grumpier and a little more, hey, people, stop making mistakes. Stop designing programs to, change, you know, to help people change their behavior that make those people fail. And mm-hmm. you know, that's not really my brand, my brand to be that grumpy person. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's almost... The audiences and people I teach seem to appreciate that because they also see it that way. And it's like finally somebody has said what they've been thinking and maybe not been able to articulate or maybe too afraid to articulate. And if you really want to put a fine point on it, it's this. And uh, again, I, I don't want to write a book on this. I don't want to be the, to be the top, the whole topic of my keynote. But it's if you've designed a product or a program to help somebody change their behavior and they have failed on that product or program, that is not a neutral event. That's a negative event, and you have damaged that person. You have done that person mm-hmm. harm. And so in other words, your product or program is unethical. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if you say it in those stark terms, 
well, at least the people that get it and the people, and they come up and they're very, very glad I've actually said it that directly. But what I'm hoping it does is it gives people pause. It gives people, um, well, it, it, it helps them step back and go, wow, we've been doing this program. We've been approaching behavior change. This is how I learned it in graduate school. This, I got my master's in blah, blah, blah. This is how I've always been taught. And it's never worked, but we just keep doing this thing that doesn't work. So hopefully if I'm really direct and if other people say, look, stop doing the things that don't work and stop damaging people, they'll stop uh, marketing or convincing people to try stuff that doesn't work and they'll start doing things and helping people find things that actually do work because there are things that work. But the landscape of how human behavior works, you know, the, the, the theories and research on that is really muddy water. And then the landscape of products and programs you might use to lose weight, reduce stress, stop drinking, what have you, is there's, it's very confusing for everyday people to figure out which thing they should be using. And when professionals suggest the wrong thing or when a brand that you trust suggests the wrong thing, I mean, that, that person's going to believe that professional or that brand. And if you, <laughs> you give them the wrong thing, that's, I, I just think that's, I mean, this is why I've gotten a little bit grumpier during parts of my mm -hmm. teaching and training because I, can, I can't stay silent on some of these things anymore. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, my work is really about shining a spotlight on what works. And, in fact, in my Stanford lab, uh, we're doing more and more of that. But uh, I think even some people that call themselves professionals in the space need to be stopped or need to... Uh, step back and go, oh, yeah, this never has really worked. Why am I continuing to promote it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that so much in my field of uh, addiction field and particularly the, the treatment programs, the rehab, the 30-day programs, the 28-day programs, and they expect people to come out and be perfect. And, you know, the, the researchers that have actually shown good results and, you know, they actually measure improvement instead of perfection. You know, total abstinence is, you know, what, the, what these programs sell. And, you know, if you're not totally abstinent, if you have one drink and slip up, then you're a total failure. You've lost everything, which is exactly the wrong way to view it. I mean, there, there's a sea change going on now, and people are starting to realize more. Um, yeah, if a person, you know, slips up and drinks one day a month, even if they're trying to quit completely. And that's much better than if they were soused, you know, 30 days out of 30. Yeah. You know, it's, there's something strange in our culture about this black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking when it comes to either creating habits or quitting habits or what have you. Um, I predict in 10 years we will be rid of that. And I think there's mm -hmm. economic reasons we will be rid of it. Um, in the tiny habits method, uh, what I and I didn't understand this so clearly at the beginning. I knew the method worked. I knew high success rate, and just who I am. Like I'm the kind of guy that's like, oh, let's try something. If it doesn't work, let's try something else. I mean, mm -hmm. that's so. You know, when I teach my students at Stanford, so my students have, you know, create products. You know, they create apps and websites and they create new companies and things like that. And part of the method in helping them is like, well, this might work. I might not try it. And if it doesn't work, 
try something out. And so that's just part of who I am. It's like, well, try it. If it doesn't work, try something else. So in the tiny mm-hmm. habits method, that creeped in even before I realized it. I called it practice and revise. So you're going to practice mm-hmm. laughing one space. You're going to practice doing push-ups. You're going to practice saying, you know, it's going to be a great day first thing in the morning. And if it doesn't work, don't beat yourself up. Just revise. Mm-hmm. You know, it means, oh, it's... And one of the things I've written about on the Tiny Habits, I have a secret blog at Tiny Habits. If you go to tinyhabits.com slash sandbox, I have a hidden blog. I guess it's not so secret anymore. Um, but one of the things I wrote about there was, you know, when you're thinking about changing your behavior, think of it like you're redesigning the furniture in your room. And if you say, oh, here's how I think it would be a nice place to have the furniture, and you put it in that spot, and it doesn't work, you don't get upset. You don't give up. You don't blame yourself for being, like, lack of willpower or something. You go, oh, that didn't work. Now let me try something else. And you move the furniture in a different position, and you try that until you find the right fit. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about changing behavior is try stuff, and if it works, keep going. If it doesn't work, try something else. And don't beat mm-hmm. yourself up that your first guess didn't work. I mean, the fact that you didn't realize the table was too long for that wall, you're like, oh, now that I put it there, I realize it doesn't fit there. Let's find where it does fit. Or let's get rid of the table altogether. So I really see, and, you know, my work isn't so much about um, addiction, cessation, or breaking habits. It's more about forming habits. But I, what they mm-hmm. really have in common, I think, is this... Um, you don't have to be perfect approach mentality. Mm-hmm. And what I've found in my, I, so the people that do tiny habits, I call them habiteers. When the habiteers, at first they kind of resist, I mean, because they've been trained so much in this notion of you're going to make a guess at how you can change your behavior and you're going to be perfect and get it right. And if you don't, you're a failure. I mean, they've been trained in that. So if they listen to how I write about it and how I talk about it and how I coach them, when it dawns on them of, oh, it's okay if I didn't get it right the first time. People write me emails and they say, oh, my gosh, such a weight was lifted off of me that not, because before there's so much pressure and I got so uptight about changing and I just felt crushed down and that made me avoid it altogether. And so now when the weight's lifted and they see, well, it's not really about my worthiness or my motivation or my willpower. It's more about me trying stuff and redesigning my life. And it's okay to redesign. In fact, in the Tiny Habits Method, I say um, revising is part of the method. It's about revision. When people get that and they have a lighter view, like they take kind of a... um, Playful might be too strong a word, but in the world of habit formation, I would call it playful. Take a a playful Mm -hmm. view... It really seems to free people up. So not only do they get, avoid getting uptight, and, and when people are uptight, and they'll email me this, they're like, oh, before I always sabotage myself. I felt so uptight about it that I would just like either resist or I would just sabotage myself. Now, there's no reason to sabotage. It's so easy to do, and if I don't get it right, I just like change a little bit and try again. And so I guess, you know, I don't want to say this is how you approach addictions, per se. I'm not an expert on that. And, but in terms of mm-hmm. bringing new habits into your life, be playful. Be light. 
don't be mm-hmm. so uptight. Don't you know? Don't put yourself in this pressure cooker and realize that you can revise, and that's part of the method for creating mm-hmm. new habits and figuring out how you get these new behaviors into your life. Mm-hmm. Well, that really parallels with some work that was done by Alan Marlat over the past a couple de- mm-hmm. couple of decades at uh, University of Washington, Seattle where he was studying people that were trying to quit drinking completely, and he was studying relapse. And he saw Mm. that when people would have a relapse, they would have one drink, and they would start beating themselves up horribly and say, I'm a horrible person, I have no willpower, I'm worthless, I'm diseased, I'm sick. And they'd make themselves feel miserable, and when they felt totally miserable, what was the first thing they did? They went on a big bender and drank and drank and drank. And he said, wait a minute. You don't have to beat yourself up for having one small slip, he said, you know. And he started teaching yeah. people his relapse prevention method of saying, you know, you can forgive yourself. You can stop with that one drink. You don't have to have 100 drinks. Um, you, you can forgive yourself. You can move on. And, you know, he studied this. He followed it up with a couple different groups, uh, you know, a control group and the, the experimental group. He found out that people that learned to forgive themselves, they stopped drinking very Quickly, I mean, they did not go on the big benders that went for days and days. They yeah. would have a slip up. They would forgive themselves. They would get back onto the absence path very quickly, and very much, much less damaged than the people that were being perfectionistic and yeah. beating themselves up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And and it's the thing I wonder why 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 is our culture usually culture is a set of practices that work that make people work together better, that make households stronger, that make communities vibrant, right? I mean, things like honesty and forgiveness, those are cultural values because they have a functional purpose. Mm -hmm. So I just scratched my head. I'm literally sitting here at Stanford scratching my head thinking, how does this black and white thinking, why is that even part of our culture? Why is this so predominant, at least in the culture I live in, where people think they have to be, you know, I'm going to do this, I have to get it perfect, if not, then I'd completely fall off the wagon. I just don't mm-hmm. see how that's functional, like things like honesty and sincerity and forgiveness and, you know, other ways we have of thinking as human beings that do serve, a, 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 you know, that they have some functional value to them. So I don't know, that, I don't, I, I don't know why that is part of our culture. Because it seems to have the opposite. It seems to just be destructive. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, so I'm not going to study it. It's not my topic to study, but if somebody has the answer, let me know, because that would be fascinating. Well, it's, like it's not we've successful. Evolved, we've evolved to have, mm-hmm. like, extra hands or something that we don't need, or we've evolved to have this something that serves no purpose. And not even serves no purpose, it hurts us. Why? You know, how did that happen? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one thing you see historically is people like the story of degradation and redemption. It's a, it's a nice mm-hmm. entertainment for them. So they like to hear the story of I hit bottom and I did all this and then I was saved and now I am this, you know. They like that story, but it's not a good model of behavior change. Oh, my gosh. Okay, that is, okay well, let me build on that. So here's the story that hopefully can get out into the world that it wouldn't make great TV a movie, but okay, so in Tiny Habits, there are some little tiny behaviors that we're finding that have a really powerful effect. 
And one of them, it sounds crazy, but one of them is if you can just floss one tooth, that then ripples out and you end up doing other positive behaviors. You'll end up flossing all your teeth eventually, but you'll just deal with your day differently. So that's, and I think one of the reasons is you're in the bathroom watching yourself change your behavior. You're seeing evidence you can change. And that's one of the reasons I think just getting yourself to floss one tooth goes, it's not about saving the one tooth. It's about learning to change and showing yourself you can change. So that's powerful. The the one that your uh, example brought up to me, the one that wouldn't make a great TV movie, it's this tiny habit. It goes like this. After my feet touch the floor in the morning, I will say it's going to be a great day. Now, that was not when, you know, after my feet touch the floor in the morning, I'm going to say it's going to be a great day. That was not one of my tiny habits back in the beginning and mm-hmm. I'm not like an affirmations kind of guy. And so I'm, I'm an experimental psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a self-help psychologist. Mm-hmm. Tiny mm-hmm. Habits has kind of taken me that direction. But the surprise is, as I shared that Tiny Habits with pe- recipe with people and people started doing it, I am getting so much feedback from people that that little of saying it's going to be a great day, even if you don't believe it's going to be a great day, you just say it. Mm-hmm. Sets mm-hmm. people off on a trajectory, and they have totally different days and different weeks, and so on. So it's this little thing. Again, it wouldn't make a great TV movie, but it's this little thing you do that changes the course of your day and your week, and I think eventually your life. And so that's what fascinates me. My work has always been about what's the smallest thing with the biggest impact. I have, even since I was a boy, I was fascinated by what's the, what's the smallest pocket knife I could have and go camping with and it still works and, you know, all that. You know, like, it's, there's something to be magic about something very small that has big impact. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's one of those things. And I think that's really what led me to Tiny Habits was what's the smallest thing that would actually have a big impact? And that's what we're learning right now. When, you know, people do Tiny Habits and if we're watching what works and what doesn't and what has ripple effects, and sometimes they lead to big breakthroughs, and I call that springboard moment, where people are doing something small, and they're feeling successful, and then on their own, without me prompting them, without they step up and do something big, like mm-hmm. they ask for a raise, or they clean up their storage unit, or they have a very difficult discussion with somebody in their life that they were afraid to do or wouldn't do earlier, but as they succeeded mm-hmm. on these small things, it seems like they get to this breakthrough moment. Again, I'm calling it a springboard moment. And mm-hmm. I like springboard because it's sort of like the gymnast who's running up little steps and boom, hits the springboard and takes this big leap. And I like it mm-hmm. because not only because you're taking this bigger uh, act- action, but you have to be taking those baby steps mm-hmm. in order for that to work. And so I think it's the right a springboard moment. You've got to be taking those little steps, feeling successful on those little steps, and then those moments seem to happen on their own. And uh, that, that's me. So there's one spot. After you do the five-day Tiny Habits program, uh, you know, runs Monday through Friday, I send you uh, a little survey on Saturday or Sunday asking you, I have three questions. One of the questions is, did you change anything else in your life this week besides those tiny behaviors. And um, oh, 
60 some odd percent of people every week say yes, they've changed other small behaviors in their life. So I look at that as kind of a ripple effect. It's like a little ripple going up, and I love that. But what I love even mm-hmm. more is the option of, yes, I changed at least one big thing in my life. And when I look at the data every week, I go right to that question because I'm so delighted. I mean, it ranges from about 15% to 30% every week. So, you know, 15% is like, oh, it wasn't the biggest week for, you know, these big breakthroughs. But still, when you think about it, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, by doing these little simple things like flossing on tooth and doing two push-ups and hanging your keys on the wall, you know, 15 to 30% of people have a big breakthrough and do something big. I love mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's like, that's, that's why when I open up the data and crunch it and look at it, that's the first thing I look for because it's exciting to see. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. It's, well, it's fun. I mean, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've seen yeah, it. Give I, me some examples. How, how have you seen this? Well, I see this because um, a lot of people want to do uh, 30 days uh, abstinence from alcohol, no drinking for 30 days. But we don't start many people there. We, you know, if you want to start there, if you're already ready to start there, that's fine. But, you know, most people will start with, I'm going to have one day off or I'm going to count my drinks. I'm going to drink one drink less a day. But then after, you know, number of weeks, a number of months, they've been, they've been uh, doing our stuff, and they say, okay, I'm going to try now. I'm going to try my 30 days. And they, you know, they might have, for previous years, not have a day off for years, and now they're succeeding, you know, to do this 30 days or do this two weeks of no drinking. And, you know, because they built up and got confidence. They made a lot of small changes, and they can do it. And that's one of the things that we see people doing a lot and succeeding in, you know, after, after a yeah. period of time. Yeah. Well, you know, I am a big fan of pointing out how much our environment influences our behavior. And again, in our culture, we think it's all about motivation, but your environment has a huge effect on even the accent, you know, how I talk, right? I was raised in California, Mm -hmm. and so I don't sound like somebody from Florida or somebody from Boston. You know, so the mm-hmm. habit of how I pronounce words was shaped by my brain. Now, if I move somewhere, at this age, you know, maybe I'd take on the accent probably not. But my point is to change your – there are two ways to change your behavior in the long term. There's only two. There's only two. One, and one that is not one of those two ways is to have an epiphany. Um, to, so I, as a designer of a program, I'm not going to be able to show you a video or have you go to some event and then have an epiphany and from then on you're going to exercise or from then on you're never going to eat sugar or something like that or mm-hmm. drink or what have you. So epiphany and so on. I try to encourage organizations to not try to create those epiphanies. Instead, focus on one of the two ways that actually works. One is baby steps. And we've been talking mm-hmm. about that. Help people take these small steps and feel successful. And when people take those small steps and feel successful. There's a natural motivation lift. There's a natural build in confidence. It's not artificial. It's natural. And it's true because they're seeing the results. Uh, And they're also building their skills. So as you take baby steps, you then get more skill. Like let's say if I just floss one tooth a day for 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, I am way better at flossing than I was 30 days before. And... Mm -hmm. 
so the more you do the behavior, you get more skilled at it, and it gets easier to do in a number of ways. So that's the baby steps approach. That's number one. The other way to change your behavior long-term is to change your environment. Um, so if you radically change the food environment around you, so like in my home, we've done this because we've focused on uh, eating better. So guess what? There's no ice cream in my home. I love ice cream. Mm-hmm. And I know if we have ice cream at home, I'm going to eat it. So, bam, mm-hmm. policy. We took that out at one point. And then later we decided there's not going to be any bread in the home because we decided, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but little by little we changed the environment of the home to surround ourselves mm-hmm. with awesome food. Like you open the fridge, anything in there I can eat, and I can eat as much as I want, so I'm never resisting any food around me. Whereas if I had like mm-hmm. burritos and ice cream and cheese around me all the time, I'd be eating that stuff. So understanding the power of redesigning your environment. Now, mm-hmm. that, that can be hard to do sometimes because you may not be able to, I mean, part of your environment is oh, your family and your friends and your work colleagues, and you may not be able to say, oh, guess what, work colleagues, I'm getting rid of you because I'm redesigning my social environment. You might not be able to do that. So I think mm-hmm. the way to think about it is, okay, for this long-term change, I've got two options, baby steps and change the environment, and you actually want to do them both. Because uh, mm-hmm. as you take baby steps, you will naturally shift. You'll evolve your environment. And then mm-hmm. you should look at how do I redesign my environment to make good behaviors baby steps. So they feed on each other. Or they kind of loop back on each other. So you don't just pick one or the other. You acknowledge the power of baby steps. You acknowledge the power of environment. And you start tweaking and practicing and playing around with baby steps changing up your environment, and when it works, keep going. When it doesn't, try something else. Okay. That sounds good. I want to look at something else a little bit before we finish up here. You've got another website up called uh, behavior model, behaviormodel.org, and you talk about yeah. what causes behavior change, motivation, ability, and trigger. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I developed a way of looking at behavior that, like you said, I call it the behavior model. And essentially, the model is this. It has a a formula. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment, when there's motivation to do that behavior, when you have the ability to do the behavior, and when there's a trigger. And by trigger, I mean it's the prompt or the cue. Let me give an example. Um, so I'm at Stanford right now, and I've worked with Stanford fundraisers. So let's say the behavior you want is for uh, a senior in the university here to donate $50 to Stanford. So she will donate when, if she has some motivation. It can't be zero. She can't hate Stanford and still donate. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen. She has to have the ability. You know, she may, if she really, really loves Stanford and has no money, if she lacks ability, it's not going to happen. And then she has to be triggered or prompted. So let's say she likes Stanford. Let's say she has 50 bucks to donate. She will not donate it until there's a trigger or a prompt, until somebody says, hey, Susan, donate now, or she gets an email that says donate now. So it's those three things coming together at one time that then lead to the behavior. And if you're lacking any one of those things, the behavior won't happen. Uh, There's a graphical way to represent the model. It's going to be hard to explain uh, just in words, but I'll try. 
it's essentially that motivation and ability are trade-offs. Uh, so if a, if a behavior is very hard to do, you will need high motivation to do it. And when the motivation is tagged, you won't be able to do the hard thing. Whereas if the behavior is easy to do, motivation can be high or low. It doesn't matter. And so, so you, you might be able to see how this led to the tiny habits approach. It's like, wow, if I just make it mm -hmm. so easy to do, my motivation can be high or low. Even when my motivation tags, I'll still floss them through there. I'll still do one push-up or, you know, with the example you gave, I'll still track how many drinks I'm having. Great. You know, so, you, so that's part of why you want to really focus on how do I make this really easy to do. Now, there's a way you can use the model to think about stopping behavior. So if you remove any one of those elements, you remove motivation, you remove ability, you remove the trigger, the behavior won't occur. Let's go back to my ice cream example. Oh, man, I love ice cream, okay? So if my goal is to stop eating ice cream, like stop that behavior, well, I can remove motivation. That's going to be pretty hard to do because I like ice cream. So maybe I read all these documents about how ice cream is bad for me or something. I don't know. Do I believe them? We tend to believe what we want to believe, so probably not. Uh, but let's imagine I can remove motivation to eat ice cream somehow. Uh, maybe I remove it by eating a whole bunch of other stuff so I'm full. I don't know. Okay, or you can remove ability. In other words, make it difficult or impossible to eat ice cream. Or you remove the trigger. And for me, the trigger for ice cream was probably like, oh, we're going to watch a movie tonight. You know, that is, okay, get out the ice cream. So removing the trigger, I mean, guess what? Don't sit down and watch a movie. Go out and walk around the block. So, so the formula still applies, whether it's, I need to get this behavior to happen, motivation, ability, and trigger have to come together, or I want to stop this behavior, you take away one of those, at least one of those elements. Take away motivation, take away ability, or take away trigger. And that formula, mm -hmm. that behavior model, is uh, that's how it works. I mean, it's, once you hear it and once you understand it, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's the answer to a riddle that nobody's ever solved before. It's a very powerful way of understanding behavior and designing for behavior. And I, I love talking about it and teaching. And then there are other layers. It gets The more you work with it, the more powerful it gets. Uh, so thank you mm -hmm. for asking about it. But that's how human behavior works. It's those three things that uh, come together or you break them apart to stop the behavior. Yeah, something that comes to mind is uh, HIV prevention with uh, heroin injectors. And, you know, there's one way to approach it is to try to make everybody stop using heroin completely. That's, that's very difficult. That uh, really requires a lot on the ability side. The other thing is to do the needle exchange program. Give people clean needles for free. And just it's very easy, you know, just to use a clean needle every time, especially if they're free. And that is actually what we've seen is to be very successful when we have needle exchange programs, give people clean needles. We get we get drops in HIV, uh, major, major drops. So uh, it really doesn't fly. Yeah. Well, and, and what's interesting about that example is, so say you have behavior number one that you don't want people to do, so then instead you have them do a different behavior, behavior number two, and you make it really easy to do. So let me, let mm -hmm. me same kind of approach, and let me apply it to my ice cream example. So behavior one is eat ice cream. So I can try to demotivate myself or deprive myself by taking ice cream out of the house, and yeah, that can work. 
But I could then say, no, what's a different behavior? What's behavior number two? Well, what we found is eating plain yogurt with apples in it. Okay, so some people may not like plain yogurt, but you actually do develop a taste for it, and it's actually pretty good. And so instead of resisting the ice cream, what we learned to do, and it worked really well, is, oh, when we really want ice cream, well, there's no ice cream, but there's plain yogurt right here in front of us, and there's apples right here, and we throw in some cinnamon, and we mix it up, and that's the behavior. So I think that's similar to the needle exchange. So it's not like uh, you're not stopping a behavior. You're instead having them do a behavior like eat plain yogurt with apples that is, you know, doesn't have the consequences of the other one. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I mean, again, it, but it all comes back to a, the, the whole the, the umbrella term I'm using for thinking about behavior. I, I call it behavior design. And in fact, that's the mm-hmm. name of my lab now at Stanford, the Behavior Design Lab. And the behavior model, thinking about it in those ways, thinking about behavior sequences, behavior swaps, and things like that, and really systematizing that is a big part of the lab's work. Of, and, you know, where I really want my Stanford work to go is to help uh, innovators, people that are creating products and programs, to create good mm-hmm. ones and not negative ones, not ones that damage people. That's first and mm-hmm. foremost. And then if uh, everyday people, uh, you know, like my neighbors and whatever, look at my lab's work and my work and they can design their own behavior, terrific. I mean, that's terrific. Um, and I do think everyday people like my neighbor can look at the behavior model, understand um, those elements, and, and you can redesign your behavior. Part of it is to get away from the received wisdom or the traditional notions of behavior change, like we talked about earlier in the program, being able to Mm -hmm. let those go and say, yeah, even though I was taught that, even though I see this in the magazines and on TV, this is wrong-headed, and helping them understand the right way to think and the right way to design behaviors into their life. I think that's absolutely true. Well, I know you've got a got an appointment that you've got to get to, so I want to thank you for being our guest on the show this evening. Well, thank you for uh, the questions, and it's a great topic. Um, I, I do think I'm very optimistic. I'll just wrap with this. I'm very optimistic that people can learn how human behavior works, and they can cut through all the garbage and clutter and get to what really works. And whether you're an innovator creating a product or program, whether you're just redesigning your life. It's absolutely doable, and I, I really see a bright future here where more and more of the right ideas and the right methods will live on and we'll get rid of the wrong ideas. Okay. So thank you Thanks for being for, part of that. Thank you for being our guest, and everyone, come back next week. We'll have another show for you then. So thank you, everyone, and good night.